want to start with a picture today. See a picture of uh, a highway in um, Pennsylvania. It's Route 30. And uh, <clears throat> just bear with me for a second. We'll, we'll get it for you. But I saw this picture the other day, and I thought this picture might be helpful to illustrate something. Uh, you'll notice this is a highway in Pennsylvania, and uh, the uh, soil underneath the highway gave way, and the highway collapsed. Fortunately, there were no loss of life, and um, I'm happy about that. But you may say, what, what in the world would cause such a thing? Well, though they don't know exactly, strong evidence points to an unusual heavy amount of rainfall. You see, um, when, when sloped areas, and that's a kind of a sloped area there, when sloped areas become completely saturated by heavy rainfall, many times the soil begins to slip. And what's, what's called a landslide occurs, and it results in a collapse, as you see there in the picture. And I, I thought about this. This just happened just a couple of weeks ago in Pennsylvania. I thought about this picture. I thought about the collapse. I thought about the heavy downpour. I thought it might help illustrate something for us today. We have been observing the gradual collapse of the biblical definition of marriage. You might say that there's been a a heavy downpour of ideas that has led to a societal shift regarding marriage, resulting in a redefining of marriage. Let me give you an example of one idea that has been pouring down upon us for some time. It's the idea that marriage is a social contract established by humankind evolving to meet the needs of an ever-changing society. What that means is, is that there are some thinkers who say, look, marriage is something that we came up with. It's something that society came up with. And therefore, since we came up with it, uh, since we are the ones who decide and have implemented marriage, we have a right to make it whatever it needs to be at whatever time in history it's needed. And of course, this leaves people free to redefine marriage from the standpoint of their own personal fulfillment. Now, this is, a, this is an idea that has been raining down heavy in our culture for quite a long time. And ideas have consequences. An idea that came up in the 1700s, uh, it has a way. It has a way of showing up in the 21st century. And these ideas that, that have been raining down upon us, instead of leading to honoring marriage, it has led to a lower view of marriage or a dishonoring of marriage. Think about it this way. Uh, imagine for a moment that your grandmother made for you a special quilt. Uh, she, she made it to, I want, this is yours. This is a special gift from me to you. Was it crafted with you in mind? Her initials were put in it. And uh, she, she made it for you so that maybe on a day like today, it's raining outside, you know, and she made it for you, maybe pull out and get it out of the, 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 the chest and, and wrap it around you and have a, a glass of hot tea and a book. And, you know, you just find comfort and uh, uh, valuing that precious gift that your grandmother gave you. But let's say, though, that you take the quilt 
And instead of using it in that way, you take it and use it to clean up the dog's mess in the kitchen. When I, you, you probably recognize right away that that would be dishonoring the quilt. That would be dishonoring your grandmother. And so some of the ideas that have been raining down upon us about marriage, marriage being a social contract or a social construct, have not led to an honoring of marriage, but more of a dishonoring of marriage. But then, you know, as I, as I began to think about this, I thought, you know, we, we need to be honest here. You know, often the world, listen to the church, hear the church saying certain things, and they'll say, well, hey, you need to, you need to start practicing what you preach. And so let's just be honest for a moment. Perhaps even we don't have a very high view of marriage. When I say we, I'm talking about the church. Perhaps we need to examine ourselves and see, are we honoring marriage? Because there may be some people here today who are wounded. You're a wounded soul. And it's been because of maybe an, a number of different possibilities. Maybe, maybe your mom and dad, maybe they divorced when you were young. And you are still stinging over that. You've never seemed to be able to quite get over that. Or maybe, maybe you yourself, maybe you've been through a divorce. And maybe it's really soured you about the whole institution of marriage. You say, you know, I just don't know about this honor in marriage. I know I'm supposed to, I know I should, but somehow I can't seem to get there. Or maybe, maybe you're here today and you're in a difficult marriage. And you're finding it really hard to, to honor marriage. And all of this has is, is left us confused regarding marriage. We know, we know, uh, Scripture says, let's honor marriage, hold it in high esteem. But somehow, we don't seem to be able to connect our reality with that. And so, we find that the more confused a culture becomes, the more necessary it is to explain afresh what marriage means. This is what I want to do today. So, what I want to do, I want to I talk about what marriage means and how to honor it. But before we get there, I need to throw this out there. Before we do this, we have to decide something. And this is not something that we'll just decide today. It'll be something that we'll have to decide as we move along in life. We're going to have to decide, is the Bible telling us the truth about reality or is it not? Now, if it's not, we just need to get rid of it. Quit looking at it, quit reading it, quit studying it. So we're going to have to decide. Is the Bible telling me the truth about reality? Is God saying, look, this is the truth? For example, it, it, may, it may not have to do with marriage for you. It may be money. Maybe, maybe you know, you're, you're struggling with, you know, God desires you're a cheerful giver. He delights in a cheerful giver. But you, you're like, I, look, look, this is my money. I'm going to do what I want to with it. Well, you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to decide, is God telling you the truth about your money? Is he being realistic about how to handle it? Or is he not? If he's not, just, you know, all right. But if he is, you can't afford to let that go. The same way with marriage. God has spoken clearly about marriage. God has defined clearly about marriage. So we're going to have to ask, are we, are we going to allow the Bible, God's word, to tell us the truth about reality or not? I ran across this quote last week, and uh, maybe, maybe this will help drill it down a little bit. It says this, in the mind anchored to the one who is God, nothing amid the tempest of life is real. Reality can become just an, quote, idea, close quote, that you've made up in your head. 
with no measure of truth against which to test them. Ideas can float free, take on a non-life of their own, and become very dangerous. I like that line, in the mind unanchored to the one who is God. Nothing amid the tempest of life is real. In other words, it's stressing, the, the author's stressing, this is a female author, she's stressing the point that we have to stay anchored to God. We have to believe that he's telling us the truth. And so, will we take our lead from God and anchor ourselves in him or from the world? So we need to really... They'll settle that. We might settle it today. We might have to settle it again two weeks from now and, and another month from now. But we're always going to be coming back to that. What does God say about it? Is he telling me the truth or do I need to listen to the world? In our text today, here's what God says. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, we need to understand why that's being said. Remember, there were no chapters and verse divisions in the original writing. And so it's just one long letter. And just a few verses prior, at the end of what's called chapter 12, we read about the fact that believers have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Christians are part of the kingdom of God. And we are to live under the rule of our king. And so what's being said here in verse chapter 13 about loving and, and, and honoring marriage and all of these things are, 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 is the writer's way of saying, look, you are part of the kingdom of God and you are supposed to live differently than the world. You're not supposed to take your signals from the world. You're to follow the rule of God's kingdom. And so that's what's going on here. And one of the ways that we are to live differently is in our approach to marriage. But we have to ask first, what is marriage? And I want you to see a definition, I think, that will stand the test of time. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman, instituted by and publicly entered into before God, normally consummated by sexual intercourse. Now, you ought to stop right there and go, wait a minute, who says? Who says that's the definition of marriage? I mean, I could take this out in the public square. <clears throat> I could take this out in the public square, not in the church. I could take it out there. And I'll guarantee you there would be those who say, well, who are you to say? Who are you to say? That's, that's not the way I define marriage. And so we need to ask the question, the definition that you just read, is that accurate? Is that accurate? And I, I believe it is. I believe it will stand the test of time because it's anchored in Scripture. And I want you to see uh, the words of Jesus in Matthew 19 to help us to understand this definition. Jesus is being questioned about marriage and divorce in particular, and he answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, no, let not man separate. Now, a moment ago we said that a definition of marriage first is a lifelong covenant. So where, where, do we, where do we get that from? How do we know? Well, notice here, Jesus said, let not man separate. Okay? So let's, let's keep that verse up there for just a moment, all right? Let's keep that up there. And I want, I want us to look at it very closely and just, just see, is this definition of marriage right? So marriage is a lifelong covenant. Well, we'll talk about a covenant in just a moment. But it's lifelong, till death do us part. Then secondly, we said that marriage is between a man and a woman. Notice it said in this verse, have you not read that 
he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So it's, it's between a man and a woman. Also, we said that the definition of marriage is, is instituted by God. Notice it said from the beginning. So from, from the beginning, God is the creator from the beginning and also what God has joined together. And so God has his fingerprints all over marriage. It is not a social contract. It is not a social construct. It is defined and given as a gift by God. But also we said consummated by sexual intercourse. And where do we find that? Well, in the phrase one flesh. One flesh. One flesh is speaking of a new family unit. Uh, each, the, the husband, the wife, have, have left their, their, one, their family unit that they have grown up in, that they were born into. They leave that family unit now to, to develop a new family unit, listen, built around the faithful, exclusive sexual union of a husband and a wife. So that's, I think, I think when we take the words of Jesus and we, we, we lay them across the definition that we've given of marriage, I think that is accurate. It's biblical, and it will stand the test of time. So we're told now, we know, okay, what is marriage? We, we, we know that. Now, now we're told in our text, hold marriage in honor. Now, that sounds like a great idea, a great concept, but it's kind of abstract, isn't it? You know, if I, if I told you, hey, go this week and hold marriage in honor, uh, what might that look like? Well, let's, let's take the word first. Honor means to prize to treasure, or to esteem. So maybe this will help. I don't know, it's not a a perfect analogy, but maybe this will help. Let's say, uh, as a husband, you're here today, and you are a hunter. And so you're always about adding to your toolbox gear for hunting. And so you happen to mention in passing to your wife that you need a new hunting knife. That your old one is just kind of wore out and you need a new hunting knife. And she's, she's perceptive. She wants to get you something for Father's Day. And so she gets online and she starts asking questions. You know, where, what's the best hunting knife? And oftentimes the best hunting knife is the most expensive. And so she's willing to pay whatever's necessary. And so she finds you the, the top of the line hunting knife. She wraps it up. Father's Day comes that morning. You open it up. And you are thrilled. You are excited. You have your hunting knife. You have something to add to your toolbox for, for hunting. And so you're happy. Your wife's thrilled. And the next morning, the next morning she comes down, finds you in the kitchen with your hunting knife. And you're using it to butter your toast with. And she's not happy. Now, why is that? Why is she not happy? It's because you're dishonoring the knife. You say, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm using the knife. No, you know, you're dishonoring the knife. You're dishonoring it because you're not using it according to its design and purpose. The, the, the one who loves you sought that knife out for you to use for that specific purpose. It's made. It's made to skin a rabbit or a squirrel or whatever it may be. It's not really designed to butter toast with. And to honor the knife would be to use it and enjoy it according to its purpose and design. And that's what it means for us to honor marriage. We're, 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 we're to enjoy it, to use it according to its, its giver's design and purpose. And so here's what I'd like to do over the next few minutes. 
How do we hold marriage in honor? I want to give you just a few things to go by. You could probably add to this list. Without a doubt, you could add to it. But here's some things that I want us to think about over the next few minutes. How to hold marriage in honor. Hopefully, clear up some confusion. Uh, Certainly clear up some of the, the heavy downpour that is coming upon us about marriage. Get a better look at marriage, a better appreciation, a better esteem and value in prizing in marriage. So first, the first one is this. God defined marriage as a covenant, not a contract. God defined marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Now, why is this so important? And I think if you're married, if you're married or you're getting married, you want to know the difference between these two. You want to know what kind of footing am I on here in my marriage? And so let's think about it for a moment. First, what does marriage as a contract look like? Now, this is what, this is what the worldly thinkers, I was listening the other day, a, a, a pastor who had performed a marriage and uh, he, he said, what we're going to do is... The husband and wife are going to have a contract here with one another. They read a contract out. Then the the dad had to agree to a contract with the stepchildren. See, this if you'll keep your ears and eyes open, this is this is some of the winds that are blowing into our culture right now. And many are saying, hey, this makes sense. Many are saying, this is a great idea. They're applauding this. This is a wonderful idea. So we need to just ask, you know, is, is this a good idea? Uh, so, so what does a marriage as a contract look like? Well, first, marriage as a contract, the terms are not preset by God. In marriage as a covenant, God defined the terms are preset by God. But in a contract, God is not involved. God has nothing to do with the marriage. And so know right away that if you're in a marital contract, the terms are not preset by God they're going to be preset by fallen, broken human beings, okay? Number two, we define the relationship. Again, not God, but we do. Broken, fallen, sinful individuals. Thirdly, we choose the conditions under which we stay or leave. For example, a contract might look like this. As long as you do this, 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 and this, you agree to that, then I'm in. Uh, I'll agree to do this, 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 and this, and, and, and I'm in. But if you don't do these things, then that gives me the right. That gives me the freedom. If things are not going well for me, I can get out. Which means if the agreement no longer yields the desired benefits, it can be terminated. Now, that's marriage as a contract. And, and again, there are many people who think, this is a great idea. But... I think you'll notice right away that it, it, it does appeal to human freedom, doesn't it? We, we, don't, we don't like to be tied down, right? But we, we want to be flexible if things are not going good for us. If marriage turns from better to worse, we like that freedom, that, 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 you know, that unlocked door to, to, to get out, you see. Now, by contrast, the Bible presents marriage as a covenant, not as a contract. This idea of marriage as a contract is... Is, is not come from God, comes from what, what's called social contract theory. Been around for a number of years. The Bible, though, presents marriage 
is something far more beautiful, something far more lovely, something far more secure. For example, marriage is a covenant. We pledge ourselves to one another for better or for worse, and it is limited only by death. I mean, I could give you a, a number of different just, just practical examples of people who, who did not have all, always better. It won't always be better. There would be some worse involved. It's the way life runs. Yet they pledge themselves to one another for better or for worse, and it's limited only by death. In a, in a covenant, we do not set our own terms. They are set for us. For example, in Malachi chapter 2, notice this verse. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. See, we honor, we honor marriage. We honor God-defined marriage by embracing it as a covenant as opposed to a contract. Now, we'll stop here, just a little, little caveat, and say, look, you might be here today, and maybe you, you know, your marriage has dissolved. And, and for, you need to hear this, not condemning you, not condemning anyone. There, there, there are biblical, justifiable reasons for divorce. So don't misunderstand me, okay? We're not, we're not talking about divorce this morning. We're talking about honoring marriage. And so what, what, what I've said so far and what I'll say going forward don't, don't, don't feel any condemnation from me, all right? Second thing we need to see is this. God-defined marriage is under God. What do we mean by that? It's not merely a covenant. We said a moment ago, it is a covenant between a man and a woman, but it's more than that. There's a third party involved, right? God himself, right? That's right. See, in a, in a covenantal marriage, it's not just a covenant between a man and a woman, God is involved. This means that both man and woman have covenant obligations to God. In other words, when we're in there for the better and for the worse, we're not just looking at the horizontal situation. We're also looking vertically, you see. We're, we're, we're looking to the one that we must give an account to. The one, listen, the one who we made promises and vows in front of, see. Our vows, our promises, our commitments to one another we made them before God to whom we must give an account. And that's why we read in Matthew chapter 19, we've already seen this verse, but it says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we honor marriage by esteeming it as being under God. Thirdly, God-defined marriage authorizes sexual intimacy. Now we're going to just tap the brakes a little bit here and slow down for a moment. Um, because um, I'm pretty sure that if I was to go on one of the late night programs, one of the late night talk shows, and uh, sit down with Jimmy Fallon, and he was to ask me, you know, hey, uh, tell me, tell me your view of marriage, and I, I just ripped off some of these things, and I got to the part where God defined marriage is authorized authorized a sexual intimacy, and I say something like this: Sex is a beautiful gift from God, reserved for marriage. Now, you you probably would imagine that the the the, the, the audience, the live audience there would, would just come unglued because we live in a culture where the, the, the push is for a, a freedom in the area of sexuality to, to have sex with whomever and whenever we want with someone. But I want you to see here, God-defined marriage 
authorizes sexual intimacy. In other words, again, sex is a beautiful gift from God reserved for marriage. Ray Ortland Jr. in Nashville, uh, he said uh, uh, that uh, sex is like fire. It's, uh, it, when it's in a fireplace, it's great. What's outside the fireplace, not so good. It'll burn the house down, see. And so marriage, marriage in its rightful, sex, sex within marriage in its rightful place is a beautiful, wonderful gift from God. And so marriage is a safeguard against sexual chaos. Look at verse 4. It said, after saying, let marriage be held in honor among all, then it says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, what is the writer meaning by that? He's speaking of the preservation of the sexual integrity of the marriage relationship. Keep it, keeping it intact, you see. Because he goes on to give us a taste of how God feels about marriage. Look at this. He said, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, look, I would be amiss if I just blew past this. I need to just slow down a minute here. This gives us a taste of how God feels about marriage, the honor of marriage. And it's warning us. It's warning us of how God treasures marriage. So much so that he tells us he will judge. He will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Now, who, who are those? Now, we, we know adultery. We're pretty clear on that. Adultery <coughs> excuse me, is when the married person who has sex with someone who is not their husband and wife. Pretty clear on that. But what about sexually immoral? Uh, the word that the writer uses for sexual immoral is the same word that we get our word pornography from. It's the Greek word pornea. And that's the word that is used here. And so what, what does it mean that God is going to judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral? The sexually immoral are those, it refers to all sexual intimacy outside of marriage. That's pretty broad. All sexual activity outside of marriage, including sex before marriage. Now, you, some, some will hear that. Some will, and again, they'll, they'll say, look, you know, is that, is that all that God, God, all God's interested in is prohibiting sex. No, no. Sex is a gift from God used in the right way is beautiful and wonderful. This is not a matter of God trying to ruin your life or you know, just put stipulations on you that are burdening and just wear you down. No. I, I, let me give you some evidence for that. In Proverbs chapter 6, listen to this. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes? not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now, when you read that, it, could you possibly come up with the idea that God is just a killjoy? That, you know, he just, he just, he just, you know, he just, he just wants to always talk about sex and always down on sin. No, you can't read that and come away with that. No, what I come away with, and I think you can see this, is God is good. God wants good for us. And just, just this analogy of, he's saying, you know, can, can, a man, can a man carry fire in his bosom and not be affected by it? And, and, and so he's basically saying, look, if, if you are sexually immoral, if you commit adultery, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring you down. It's going to hurt you. God wants to help us. 
So it's not a matter of God trying to ruin our lives. No, he's trying to point us in the direction to real life. See, God has so constructed us that sex is safe and fruitful in marriage, but dangerous and destructive outside of marriage. And that's how much God cares. He's willing to state it just as it needs to be stated. And so we honor God described marriage by reserving sex for marriage. One final thing that we need to say, and that is this. God defined marriage as one man marrying one woman. Now, you don't need me to tell you that you know, how highly controversial that statement would be today in 2018. Because in 2015, the United States Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, ruled that the U.S. Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage. Now, I would say to my, most of my older brothers and sisters would know this, but from some of my younger friends, not everything that is legal is morally right and pleasing to God. So we need to think that through. You know, as, as things, as things get passed along and they finally become legal and the stamp of approval is put upon it by the Supreme Court or whoever it may be, we need, to, we need to acknowledge that, look, just because it is, quote, legal does not make it morally permissible in the eyes of the one who really matters. Because in the Bible, there is no same-sex marriage. There is God-defined marriage. That is what we find, but not same-sex marriage. That is why we read these passages, and we've already seen them, but let me state them again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife. Now, I'm aware, and I'm sure you are, of the various stories that get passed down. I've, I've read far too many to count of a man who was married to a woman. They had two, three children, perhaps. Children got up to adult age. The man suddenly left his wife and his family to go off and take up with another man and to either live with him or marry him. Many of these stories, many of them. And often they are, they are presented to us in such a way as to say, look, there's not any difference. They're happy. Things are going well in their life. They have a stable home. Uh, these two lesbians who are married have children. Things are going well. They're getting into the soccer practice. They're, they're feeding them. They're taking care of them. I say all that to say this, whatever good, whatever good may be said about their faithfulness to one another, those who are engaged in same-sex marriage are not being faithful to God. See, they, they may be, they may be faithful to one another. They may have a good story that they can speak to society about. They may be faithful to one another, maybe. But if they are in a same-sex marriage, they are not being faithful faithful to God. In fact, they are dishonoring marriage as God gave it. And here's what I'd like to do. I want to close in just a second, but here's what I want to tell you as far as looking forward. Um, we're going to take a few weeks to, to talk about the gift of marriage. I'm not going to tell you anything new. I'm not going to tell you anything new. You know, after, uh, after being your pastor for 24 years, I, uh, I can remember the days before I ever came here that I thought it was my job to say something new, 
you know, something clever, something nobody had ever seen before. And that's why I hope you never hear those sermons. Hopefully nobody ever recorded those. Because <laughs> my job is not to tell you anything new. It's to bring to remembrance what you already know and that we have a tendency to forget. So next week, we're going to ask this question, what does God want for your marriage? Maybe you're married, or maybe you're getting married, and we have a tendency to think, I want this for my marriage. I want this for my marriage. Well, let's put the brakes on and just say, what does God want for our marriage? Because there's, there's something he wants for our marriage. Secondly, we're going to ask the question the following, why can marriage be so hard at times? You may be looking around at someone else in the church family thinking, my, 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 they've got the marriage that I want. Why does theirs seem to go so easy and mine seems to go so hard? And we're just going to open that up for just a little bit and, and understand why marriage can be so hard for all married couples, really. Then we're going to take a Sunday and we're going to look at this. We're going to look at singleness. Because I've heard over the years, and I believe this is probably true, that there are many single people in the church who feel like they are second-class citizens. But they probably came in today and they go, here he goes again, going to talk about marriage. I'm left out. We're not going to leave you out because the Bible has a lot to say about singleness. Not everybody's given the gift of marriage. Some will remain single for the glory of God, and we need to talk about that, and we will. But today, before we close, here's, here's what I want to ask you. I want you to think about this. I want you to really give some serious thought to this. What is really going on when it comes to marriage? Or let me say it this way. What is really going on with all of the attempts at redefining marriage? And why does the church kick back on this? I mean, there are many churches that are caving in. There are many liberal congregations, many progressives that are caving in on this idea and say, look, we've got to make room. We've got to make room for those in, in, in same-sex uh, uh, marriage. We've got to make room for all of these folks. Why would we as a church, why would we kick back on this? Why would we say no? No, we're, we're going to remain with God-defined marriage. Why, why would we do What's at stake here? What is really going on here? And there's a passage of Scripture that I was looking at this week, and I think this, this is kind of what I want you to think about. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll see it on the overhead, and we'll... We'll bring things to a close. Paul writes, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. Now, let's just take a moment to understand what's going on here. Paul is warning, Paul is warning that there's going to be some people that depart from God's reality. They're going to say, nope, I'm not going to live into those confines of, of the scriptures. I, I think life is bigger than that. I think things have changed. Things have evolved, and we need to change. And so there's going to be those who depart from the faith, and they're going to be, they're going to be listening to something. They're going to be listening to the heavy downpour of ideas, and what I want you to see is we're... Where do those ideas come from? Deceiving spirits, teachings of demons. And they, they will take the shape of men and women who will go forth through the insincerity of liars, it says, whose consciences are seers, who forbid marriage. Now, this was written in the first century. And uh, we've seen the results of those who 
forbid marriage, right? We see it in the Roman Catholic Church. The priest having to be celibate. Can't marry. Can't marry, marry and really be a, a man of God, you know, that sort of thing. And so we, we, we saw that extreme in the first century. What are we seeing today? We're seeing the exact opposite. That, that whoever wants to be married. See, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see a push, and we're seeing it already, a push for polygamy, for polyamory. All kinds of ideas that are being raining down that do not honor God-defined marriage, but dishonor God-defined marriage. And so why is this? What's really going on? Think about it this way. The Bible begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends with the marriage of the lamb and his bride, the church. Now think about that. That, that, that ought to cause some antennas to go up and go, what's, what's going on? You know, is it, is it really that big of a deal? You know, do we really need to, you know, to, 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 to draw a line here? Do we, listen, God's word begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. And it ends in Revelation chapter 9. You can read about this. The marriage of the lamb and his bride, the church. And I've thought this this week. If the Bible, listen now, this is why we have to say, is the Bible giving me reality? If the Bible is telling a story of married romance and Christ's triumph, no wonder the demonic powers are seeking to bring about its collapse. No wonder. If marriage, if our marriages are little platforms of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we'll see more of next week, if they really are, then no wonder, no wonder that the efforts for the collapse of God-defined marriage is coming all the way from our greatest enemy. So what can we do this week? Here's homework, okay, you might say, for all of us who are married. What do we do? What can we do this week to hold marriage in honor? And it's simple. It's simple. Husbands, wives, love and respect one another. Husbands, wives, love and respect one another. God will be pleased and the gift of marriage that he has given us will be honored.